and welcome back to the Countering Climate Skepticism podcast, the podcast where we discuss different arguments put forth by climate skeptics and seek to disprove their claims. We have grouped the different climate denial arguments into different categories that together form the climate denial ziggurat that you will see in our logo. If you want to know more about that, the first two episodes of the podcast are a great place to start. If you are sceptical about climate change, our podcast will help to convince you why it really, really is happening and is a big deal. If you're already convinced, we aim to provide you with the facts and evidence to challenge any climate denial arguments you might stumble across. My name is John Rainier and I'm joined by my co-host Mark Prosser. How's your week been, Mark? It's not been bad, John. Uh, I've been, as to be expected from someone who's sort of involved in climate change research, I've been uh, watching the the recent uh, COP28, the UN meeting that happens every year on climate change with great yeah. interest. I hear it's, uh, it's been very controversial. Yeah, yeah. Like I think, uh, well, first of all, it's... It's in the UAE, which is sort of you know fossil fuel. Uh, a lot of fossil fuels in that country's economy, and and the very chairman of the of the COP meeting was a chief executive of the National Oil Company. Bit of a conflict of interest there. Yeah. So Sultan Al Jaber was the or Jaber is it? I'm I'm sorry if I'm butchering that pronunciation. Um, but yeah, so he's the the head of their their oil company Adnoc. I hear. Exactly. Yes. And at one point, I think he even said, or was it, what did he say exactly? So I don't misquote him. He said, there is no science indicating that a phase out, note that term, phase out of fossil fuels is needed to restrict global heating to 1.5 degrees. <sighs> yeah, I think, I think that was the, the sort of the collective reaction of most of the world when they heard that. It's not great, is it? It, it, it can feel a little bit like you know the power and influence of the oil and gas industry is so great that they've been able to hijack something that is directly working towards addressing the impacts primarily caused by their industries yes yeah it it it, it, it there is a lot <laughs> a lot of negativity about the whole process uh, but Despite all that, I still think it's an important thing that happens every year. I mean, if, if someone was to turn around and say, okay, the, the whole thing's a farce, it's a circus, it's been completely hijacked by fossil fuel interests, I, I would not be happy with the idea of it not happening every year because I think for all its flaws, it sort of does send out a message to the world and the world is transitioning away from fossil fuels, maybe not as fast as we'd, as we'd like, but, uh, I, you know, and, and a lot of the action on climate change tends to take place sort of at the local level, at the regional level, at the country level. Um, and I think, and even though, um, you know, there's lots of loopholes in the eventual agreement and, and phrasing that they use, uh, I still think it's important if it's only symbolically. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what some of those loopholes are that uh, are built into the, the outcomes of the COP? Yeah, I mean, I think there are probably many, but I think I guess a key one is that um, I think a lot of people were pushing for a, a phase out of fossil fuels. Um, and I think, I mean, one of the things that they're claiming is new to the whole uh, to, to this COP is that they specifically mentioned fossil fuels. And yeah. I and a lot of other people say, you know, the COP meetings have happened every year since 1990. This is the 28th one. And only now they mention fossil fuels. So it does seem to be significant but is it <laughs> it should have happened a yeah. long time ago yeah yeah and um 
was it calls for a transition away rather than phase out you know i mean like you could what's it you could reduce your economy's dependence on fossil fuels by just one percent over the next 50 years and that would technically be a transition away from fossil fuels so yeah. The the language yeah. is a bit, all a bit loose. Yeah, I mean, like you know me, Mark. I'm always trying to kind of dig deep and find <laughs> find the positivity and things. And and I, some of the things that I think I've taken from it, I think because going into it, people knew that there was going to be such massive opposition uh, from vested interests. The it, it it's significant because they have actually managed to get locked in transition fuels being mentioned for the first time. I mean, I think COP26, which was hosted by the UK, mm-hmm. um, we did very well. We managed to get a reference into the phase down of coal for the first time. So that was the first time any fossil fuels have been mentioned. Um, and I think the reason why there's been so much opposition is because like, this is really becoming a potential existential threat to these industries. And therefore, the fact that it has actually been pushed through means that it is going to make an impact on decisions made by private companies, mm. on governments, on banks and investors. It's that, that as we've talked about before on, on this podcast, that turning this ship around is so massive yeah. that actually like we are just seeing a key hurdle being overcome. And yet, always more could have been done and more could have been said. But I think the fact that, you know, I mean, right up until the very end, Saudi Arabia were were resisting reference to any fossil fuels. So the fact that we have still managed to get something in, you know, is the beginning of a step in the right direction. But it also highlights to me just how powerful these industries are and how much we all collectively need to be holding governments and these private companies to account to, to make these changes happen. Definitely, yes. Um, and yeah, it does put pressure on them. And this ship, like you say, is hopefully turning around. Yes, yeah, so I, I, I think I think there are positives to it. Yeah, I think one other thing I took as well is that, you know, the, some of the small island nations and, and smaller mm. countries that are seeing the biggest impact, uh, places like Samoa, you know, they really, really hammered home on the world stage the idea that, we are still a long way from being able to keep below the 1.5 degree increase limit and that we still have a huge amount of work to be able to do to to keep beyond that, uh, to keep below that. And we're going to be discussing that in the episode today about yes. just what going beyond 1.5 degrees is actually going to mean for us. And so I think really it's, it's just about we've got to keep driving home the awareness of what will happen if we don't and what needs to be done to correct it exactly cool right hopefully that's some of the depressing stuff out of the way there, Mark, is it? <laughs> well it's gonna, be, it's gonna be all fun and games for the rest of this episode oh yeah oh yeah yeah definitely <laughs> okay so over the last few episodes we've discussed the uh, bottom levels of the climate ziggurat uh, for those who don't know a ziggurat is like a, a stepped pyramid and the bottom levels of the climate ziggurat are those arguments that form the foundations of all climate denial arguments the claims that climate change isn't happening and if it is happening it's natural so we've pretty convincingly disproven those arguments over the last few episodes uh, this episode we're going to be discussing the claim that the amount of warming itself isn't significant and will not have a big impact on us. 
So unfortunately, like John just alluded to a few minutes ago, this episode is going to be pretty bleak, uh, as we will oh, necessarily <laughs> be discussing the current and future impacts of climate change. There's a little bit of a, you know, you've got to, you've got to say them in order to be able to refute them. Uh, have we got some good news stories to counterbalance this, John? Yeah, yeah, we've got a great good news story uh, lined up for the end of this episode. Good. So if you manage to power through, then uh, you know there, there's something, there's something waiting to cheer you up at the end. A, a light at the end of the tunnel. Exactly. Yeah, but if you, if you, if you don't, if you, if you, if climate change is quite relentless for you anyway, feel free to skip this episode because yeah, there's there's. There's a lot of bad news when it comes to the current state of the climate and the future state of the climate. So we won't hold it against you if if you just don't want to get too depressed. Okay, so first of all, how would you understand this argument, John? What does the denier or sceptic even mean by the amount of warming caused by climate change isn't significant? What do they actually mean? Uh, I guess they might well be arguing or thinking that the changes to the climate are going to have a minimal effect on us or the planet. and they maybe challenge the idea that that the planet warming um, is going to be bad. So, you know, those arguments where people say, well, it'd be nice to have some sunnier days now and then, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that latter point um, is, I guess, level four, like, you know, that there will be some positives to climate change. Um, But yeah, yeah. So the minimal effect on us, um, how how would you respond to that in particular? Any thoughts? like Leonardo DiCaprio in <laughs> Don't Look Up, I'd just scream in their face, I think, yeah. <laughs> but no, uh, I guess education is the first step, uh, showing them that we're not, we may not be currently seeing big changes in the Western world yet, but there are places in the world that are, like as we've already mentioned, Samoa and other vulnerable small nations, um, showing them what impact it will happen if we continue as we are, and, and really trying to draw a line between what we can do and the impact it will have. I think many people think that climate change is just too big a thing for us to address as individuals. We feel like we're insignificant in all of this uh, and to to drive home the idea that it's a shared responsibility. So we need to get some momentum going to get everyone fully on board. Yes, exactly. Uh, And I think it's, I mean, it's if you have a problem that is urgent and where people feel like they don't have any agency, you know, ability to help the problem, then of course people are going to be a bit psychologically defeated by this. Mm. Um, but I, I think it's worth bearing in mind that you, you know you can do your bit, uh, and a lot of people all over the world, a lot of companies all over the world, governments, you know, everyone doing a little bit, uh, you know, we can make a change, uh, and a change is already happening. So. So yeah, so you do have agency. You you can do things on climate, you know, like even if it's something like, you know, eat a little less meat or or fly a little less, you know, like mm-hmm. it's not like we have no agency at all. And this can help you feel a little bit better about what's going on, I find. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so in in terms of this uh the amount of warming isn't significant. Well, when I saw this for the first time, I sort of understood it in two different ways. So I'm going to explain these two different ways first. The first is something called climate sensitivity. Uh, And I can't remember whether I've spoken about this before, but I'll quickly explain what climate sensitivity means. I don't I don't think we have. No. Okay, that's good. Yeah, because I was I couldn't quite remember. I was sort of sort of thought we had, but maybe we haven't. So, yeah. So in a previous episode, we've said that the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere 
was uh, 280 parts per million before the Industrial Revolution. So climate sensitivity asks if this amount of carbon dioxide was doubled to 560 parts per million, what would be the resulting temperature change or resulting eventual temperature change? Now, we don't know this for certain, but a number that sticks in my head that's often quoted is something like three degrees warmer uh, compared to the pre-industrial. But this is not known exactly because there's a lot of uncertainty in the science, but it, we kind of know roughly the ballpark of where it'll be. We might get lucky, it might be 2.5 degrees. Uh, if we're unlucky, it might be four or even more. We're not exactly sure how the climate system will eventually react. Now, currently, we are not in the position where we've doubled the atmospheric CO2, but we have increased it by 50%. We're at 420 parts per million at the moment. And as a result, we've had something like uh, 1.2 degrees of warming. It's also worth noting that because of the sheer mass of the Earth's oceans, the climate system hasn't yet reached its equilibrium temperature with the 420 parts per million that we've already put in the atmosphere. Therefore, if, if we stopped emitting fossil fuels tomorrow, we would still see some global warming as the atmosphere and oceans temperature caught up with the 420 parts per million that we currently have in the atmosphere. So there's this kind of delay, uh, unfortunately. Okay, so the first perhaps trivial way of understanding the denier claim that the amount of warming is or won't be significant is that they expect climate sensitivity to be low, much lower than three degrees perhaps maybe like one degree or half degree. What, based on what I've just said, what, what, what do you think you could say in response to that, John, if, if that was their argument? Well, as uh, I'm learning from you and from this podcast, Mark, I'd be saying to them, <laughs> let's look at the evidence. What, what does the science say? Precisely, yeah. So like, given the amount we've already warmed with the amount of carbon dioxide we've put in the atmosphere, it is unlikely that the climate sensitivity is going to be as low as one degree. So yeah, so we're going to be extraordinarily lucky with a low climate sensitivity, given the amount of warming we've already had. We're not, it's not going to be one degree because we've already had one degree of warming, right. even without getting to a doubling of carbon dioxide. So what the denier is more likely trying to argue is that something like three degrees or four degrees of global warming isn't going to have many impacts. And I think this is in line with what you said earlier. I mean, every day, the uh, every 24 hours, the temperature uh, drops by more than four degrees. And it's all, it's all fine, yeah? Like overnight, the temperature drops quite a lot. Uh, maybe the Earth is very resilient to such temperature changes and life will carry on as normal. Any thoughts on this, John? I guess individual fluctuations in local temperatures are much less significant than a global change in the average temperature everywhere. Spot on. This is absolutely true. And I guess I might say that life and indeed human society is adjusted to the stable environment and climate conditions that we have found ourselves in over the last 10,000 years. The variability of temperature in the day-night cycle is already factored in to life and society as we know it, as these are the conditions we are used to. The global climate change we are talking about is a radical departure from this mean state of affairs. I think it helps to contextualise a little bit that when the 
global climate was four degrees cooler than it, than it is today. Uh, yeah. A giant ice sheet extended all the way from the North Pole to about halfway down the island of Great Britain. Reading, where I am, might have escaped this enormous ice sheet sitting on top of us. But I'm afraid, John, where you are in Birmingham, it would have been underneath this ice sheet. And, yeah. and the same around the world. So just this enormous bloody, you know, not just like an ice sheet sitting on top of Greenland. It's like covering quite a bit of the Northern Hemisphere. So this is enormously different. So that's what four degrees of change in the climate system can do if you make it four degrees cooler. If we make the climate four degrees warmer than now, we should be expecting a similar magnitude of change to precipitate. Hopefully we're going to avoid four degrees because the world is doing something about climate change. And uh, because of that, we've it's probably the case that we're not going to experience four degrees of global warming. Thank God. Mm. And if we can do even more, at the, at the moment we're looking at about three degrees, I think is what they think is going to happen. But if we can do even more than we're already doing now, we can scale that back to maybe somewhere between two and three degrees. And it's yeah. every 0.1 degree is important. So this is something that's quite difficult to explain with climate change. So like, because, you know, people hear like one, two, three degrees, that's, you know, that's manageable. But I guess in addition to the sort of the change in the mean temperature, a small change in the the mean of a distribution of temperatures tends to result in a large change in the extremes. Right. So if before, if you had like a just a 1% chance of a severe heat wave, like a, a small one degree change in global temperatures can mean that this is now more like 5%. Yeah. So you've had like a, a quintupling of the probability of things like extreme heat waves and quite a lot when it comes to damaging aspects of climate impacts of climate change like forest fires or floods it's the extremes that are the problems you know we can deal with like the you know the the, the non-extremes to a degree but when you get extremes then a lot of the the actual damage from climate change happens so it's not just mm. about the mean you know change the, the 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 increase in the probability of flooding you know like a, a one in a thousand year uh, flooding event is pretty damn terrible we don't want that to be happening every 50 years. Yeah. You know? Okay, so ultimately they're arguing that there will be warming, but that one, two or three degree rise in global temperatures won't matter. I think at this point it makes sense to look at the observed impacts of climate change today at 1.1 or 1.2 degrees. It's also worth noting here that this year is likely to be especially hot so maybe like 0.2 degrees warmer than the aforementioned 1.2 degrees because we're in an El Nino year where more of the ocean's heat is released to the atmosphere. So thankfully we should get a bit of respite when this El Nino subsides. The UN has a target of 1.5 degrees of global warming that we should aim to not exceed. So this, this year where there's an El Nino gives us a sort of a taste of what this supposed safe limit might be like and I don't know about you, John, but um, reading through the global media reports of wildfires and floods, it doesn't feel safe at all. Every six or seven years, uh, a UN organisation called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change produces an enormous report on climate change, typically split into three parts. Uh, the first looks at the physical changes. The second looks at the impact of those changes. And the third looks at how we might mitigate future changes. This report is enormous. 
thousands of pages and summarizes the latest science on these topics. I have chosen to look at the summary for policymakers and specifically on the second part, how the physical changes in temperature, precipitation affect humanity. Because according to our deniers and skeptics, these negative impacts aren't supposed to happen. The summary for policymakers, as the name suggests, take the, takes the highest level findings. So it's the definite place to go looking for busy policymakers who want a clear understanding of what the science says. Okay, so to kick off, uh, the first paragraph is, so as of 2022, there have been widespread and rapid changes in the atmosphere, the ocean, cryosphere and biosphere. Human-caused climate change is already affecting many weather and climate extremes in every region of the world. This has led to widespread adverse impacts and related losses and damages to nature and people, high confidence. Vulnerable communities who have historically contributed the least to current climate change are disproportionately affected, high confidence. Evidence of observed changes in extremes such as heat waves, heavy precipitation, droughts and tropical cyclones, and in particular their attribution to human influence, has further strengthened since the last report. So not a promising start, really, for someone who thinks that no changes have occurred. No, no, not great. And when you when you said things like high and medium confidence, um, what exactly do you mean by that? Like, how's that measured and what's the criteria for that? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, so when compiling this IPCC report, scientists look at the published scientific papers on any given topic, for example, hurricanes, uh, and as well as reporting what has been found in relation to climate change, they also have to judge the degree of confidence scientists have in various findings. So this confidence is a sort of is based on the robustness of the evidence. Uh, and the degree of agreement between different scientists studying the same topic. So, so uncertainty is part and parcel of science, really. Uh, sometimes yeah. we're not certain that a given change has taken place. Sometimes there's still too much noise in the system yet to be able to say, has it actually changed? Can we statistically say that it has changed? Um, okay. Because some systems are very variable anyway. Um, so for some things we're sure, for some things we're not. Yeah. So the, the line in the above, vulnerable communities who have historically contributed the least to climate change are disproportionately affected, high confidence. This line is also of note because it indicates that countries in the global south, so sub-Saharan Africa, Asia, etc., the developing world, are disproportionately affected by climate change uh, when compared to rich countries say the US and Europe. So perhaps the sceptic, if they are from the rich world, uh, can get away with saying that climate doesn't have that much of an impact, simply because the bulk of the current impacts aren't happening in the rich world. Though that's not to say that the impacts aren't ramping up here too, but just that the majority are in the developing world. So on food and water security, something that's pretty damn important, Approximately 3.3 to 3.6 billion people, so that's half the world's population, live in contexts that are highly vulnerable to climate change. Human and ecosystem vulnerability are interdependent. Increasing weather and climate extreme events have exposed millions of people to acute food insecurity and reduced water security, with the largest adverse impacts observed in many locations 
and communities in Africa, Asia, Central and South America. Climate change has caused substantial damage and increasingly irreversible losses. Climate change has caused substantial damages and increasingly irreversible losses in terrestrial, freshwater, cryosphere, coastal and open ocean ecosystems. High confidence. Although overall agricultural production has increased, climate change has slowed this growth over the past 50 years globally. Roughly half of the world's population currently experience severe water scarcity for at least past part of the year due to a combination of climatic and non-climatic drivers, medium confidence. So, so there, I'll just mention two things, because all of this is sort of like quite sort of high level summary of what's going on. So it doesn't really talk about mm. sort of individual impacts. So there's two that, 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 that I've thought, if this happens, this is going to be pretty damn catastrophic for the people involved. So, so the first one is that in sort of, sort of the area around India, you know, a lot of people uh, get their water from, you know, sort of the glaciers on mountains. Yeah. And of course, with climate change, these, these glaciers are melting. And this is, this is causing a problem because there's a lot of flooding from the increased melts. But even more alarmingly, you know, like once these ice caps have melted away, you know, a lot of people are going to struggle to get, you know, water. Uh, and this is this just doesn't bear thinking about. So these these people are probably going to then have to move because you know like that that basically the the Himalayas and the water coming from that has you know is part of what sort of sustains uh, the ability for humans to live sort of in this in this region. And so that's going to be that's going to be really bad when that happens. I don't know off the top of my head when it will happen, but it's it's a worry for people who depend on the you know water from glaciers. Uh, and there yeah, are we yeah. We also saw the the impact when we were traveling in the States as well. So uh, we were in uh, California uh, in Yosemite mm. National Park. Yeah. And the uh, National Park this year opened much, much later. Uh, for one, uh, when we were there, it was still closed for some areas um, due to uh, snow. So there had been a significant increase in snowfall that year meaning that uh, they just couldn't access huge parts of the park. Uh, but also, um, because of that increased snow, that then meant that there was increased snow melt, which was then causing flooding. So huge parts of the valley were still flooded when we were there. Um, and there were some of the bus routes that weren't available and things like that. So like we're, we are seeing, even in the Western world, uh, a big impact of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. it's I think... Like in the past, you could have said that, you know, climate change will impact us in the future. But, you know, it's already impacting us now. But thankfully, not as much as it's impacting the global south. But but I mean, like, you know, last year we had 40 degree temperatures in the UK and that caused, you know, a bunch of elderly people to die. Yeah. Um, yeah. So 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 the fact so we are being impacted already. But but yeah, but 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 more alarmingly than that, like, you know, in places and there are places in the tropics where the temperature is already very high and you know in india like it doesn't need to get that much hotter before it becomes sort of uninhabitable for people yeah yeah, yeah. you know like once once the temperature hits a certain threshold like you know you need to be indoors in air conditioning or else you're going to get heat stroke you know sort of the physical limits of what people can do and there's a certain i think every so often the temperature does go above this threshold but it's only there for a you know small period but you know if we continue with sort of two to three degrees of global warming 
you know, like, is India still going to be, is it still going to be possible to live in India? You know, because so much, well, because a much greater proportion of the year will be above this threshold. And so, again, migration and all the problems that that will cause, um, yeah. these are not small populations we're talking about either. Anyway, going back to the, this report, migration and disease is another factor. In all regions, increases in extreme heat events have resulted in human mortality and morbidity very high confidence. The occurrence of climate-related foodborne and waterborne diseases, very high confidence, and the incidence of vector-borne diseases, high confidence, have increased. Climate and weather extremes are increasingly driving displacement in Africa, Asia, North America, high confidence, and Central and South America, medium confidence, with small island states in the Caribbean and South Pacific being disproportionately affected relative to their small population size, high confidence. On uh, economic losses and damage, economic damages from climate change have been detected in climate exposed sectors, such as agriculture, forestry, fishery, energy and tourism. Individual likelihoods have been affected through, for example, destruction of homes and infrastructure and loss of property and income, human health and food security, with adverse effects on gender and social equity. High confidence. <clears throat> Something that's kind of annoying with climate change, John, that bears mentioning here, is that it's quite often not possible to look at a particular event, say an individual heat wave, and attribute that individual heat wave to climate change. Because there's always a chance that that heat wave in particular might have occurred anyway, even if we had not changed the climate, as heat waves have always been a thing. Yeah. However, more and more scientists do what's known as attribution studies, where they take a certain event, like a heat wave, and using climate models, they see how likely it is that such an extreme event, for example, the 40 degree temperatures in Great Britain last year, would have occurred in a non-altered climate. Frequently, they find that for many of these extreme weather events that we see today, the odds that they would have happened if we hadn't changed the climate are very small indeed. So it is unlikely that climate change hasn't greatly stacked the odds in their favour. We can do these attribution studies with things like weather events, but the same argument can be made for conflicts or mass migration events. But it's, of course, you know, far more difficult then to do attributional studies on those. It's just difficult to know how much climate change has played a part a fact which the sceptics and denialists will often gleefully jump on. Just to summarise, uh, it's already quite bad. Uh, on a global scale, climate change is likely to further cause us problems with heat waves, floods, storms, undermine our global food security, undermine our water security, damage ecosystems that we rely on for food, fisheries from coral reefs being a good example, inundate us at the coast with sea level rises, uh, increase the prevalence of diseases such as those from mosquitoes, and undermine our security more generally. So for example, the US Army considers climate change a threat multiplier with regards to global conflicts and regional conflicts. Yeah. So the, the idea that the impacts are or are or are going to be mild just isn't borne out by the impacts we are already seeing across ecosystems and societies. Now you might be 
forgiven for thinking that because we are likely to breach the oft-talked-about 1.5 degree target, that we are doomed if we exceed it. I want to stress that it is a bit of a false binary and a bit of a myth. We have to keep the temperature rises as low as possible. There is no magic temperature in this regard. 1.5 degrees is better than 2 degrees. 2 degrees is a hell of a lot better than 3 degrees, and 3 degrees will be far, far preferable to 4 degrees. Also, every 0.1 degrees added on is not the same in terms of impacts. They ramp up exponentially, the impacts. So adding 0.1 degrees to 2.9 degrees will have a much bigger impact than adding 0.1 degrees to 1.9 degrees. So there is no point at which we should, we should all just give up and go home. We've got to keep putting on as much pressure as possible to limit temperature rises, no matter where they are. Yeah, so that's reassuring to hear, really. We need to keep the pressure up, keep focusing on keeping temperature rises as low as possible, and it will reduce the potential impacts. So temperatures are rising. We're going to have to accept that. But there's no reason to not work hard at limiting how far they rise, as every step we take will at least preserve the current state of nations, cultures and society as they are. Exactly, yes. So, 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 so people seem to sometimes talk about 1.5 degrees and once we've breached it, you know, like that, that's it. And it, that is not the case, exactly as you've said. So implicit in the denier argument, the amount of warming isn't significant, is that the amount of warming in future of, say, three or four degrees won't have impacts. So it's not just about the current impact, it's about the future impacts as well. And I think the best way to dispel this sort of argument is to give a sense of what impacts we might expect to see at one, two, three, four, and five degrees of climate change. And for this, I have an essay from the book, The Complete Guide to Climate Change by Matt Dawson, I believe. I'll put the link in the show notes where he talk, where they talk about how much, what we expect to see in terms of impacts from, from these different levels of climate change. So to start off with, up to one degrees. So this is an amount of climate change that we've already surpassed. The impacts, 10% of global ecosystems will be adversely affected. Accelerated melting, retreat, and possible loss of most South American, Himalayan, and African glaciers. Increased coral reef bleaching and mortality. Reduced crop yields in some regions, especially Africa. Accelerated sea ice loss and permafrost thaw possible further species extinction. Several unique biodiversity-rich ecosystems will face increased vulnerability to damage or loss, including the, the Dryandria forests, Western Australia, the Northern Queenland rainforests, the Subadans of Bangladesh, sorry, I'm probably mispronouncing some of these names, and the Finbos and Karoo in South Africa. While these impacts are substantial or even devastating, at the local level, on a, global, on a global scale, the impacts of a one degree C warming will not be significant. And most communities and many ecosystems are likely to cope with a temperature change of this magnitude. So if we keep it where things currently are, we can cope. Yes, that would have been true had we been under one degrees, but all oh. of the above was... <laughs> <laughs> too late for that. <laughs> Possibly too late for that. But, but you know, like, again... Here's what you... Here's what you could have won. Yeah, here's here's the the prize that you missed exactly. Um, but yeah, we, we're we're at one point one, one point two degrees, so we're only slightly above this threshold. So again, you know, it's we're not too far off that. 
So between one and two degrees. Decreased agricultural yields become more widespread in the tropics and subtropics with possible yields, increases in higher latitudes. So there's a positive. One to three billion people could experience increased water stress and up to 200 million additional people at risk of hunger. An expected spread and increased incidence of malaria and dengue, increased infrastructure damage and losses due to extreme weather events, over 90% of the world's coral reef subject to serious damage, and many could be permanently lost. Up to half of frogs and many reptiles could face extinction, as well as possible extinction of several Arctic species in the wild and significant losses in global bird populations. Overall species loss could reach 20%. 60% of tundra would become unstable, mobilisation of the Kalahari sand dunes and significant drying in several regions, particularly North Africa and the Mediterranean, up to 50% loss of Kakadu wetlands, Australia, Dryandria, Australia, succulent Karoo, South Africa, and Chinese boreal forest, and 40% of Queensland rainforest, Australia. A bit uh, Australian-centric, I guess, but um, I guess it gives the, the general picture. Yeah, yeah. shows that, that countries in the Southern Hemisphere really are being hit very hard, very quickly from these temperature changes. Definitely, yeah. Uh, so now we're on moving on to between two and three degrees. So this is where we're, we're kind of likely to sort of end up in the maybe the latter half of this century, possibly before. Complete loss of the Kakadu wetlands, the succulent Karoo, Dryandrea forests and Chinese boreal forests. Near total loss of the world's existing coral reefs and widespread collapse of the Queensland rainforest ecosystems. 50% loss of the Finbos. South, Af South Africa, up to half uh, European and all Australian alpine species at risk of extinction, 20 to 70% loss of migratory bird habitats, and possibly 30 to 40% of all species at risk of extinction. Approaching or exceeding the estimated trigger point for the complete deglaciation of Greenland, with eventual 7 meter sea level rise. Possible destabilisation of the West Antarctic ice sheet with eventual addition of six metres of sea level rise. Large impacts on global cereal production with possible 5-10% to 10 losses in crop yields at lower latitudes and an additional 400 million people at risk of hunger. Possibly half the world's population at risk of exposure to dengue fever and an additional 300 million people to malaria. Substantial increase in people at risk from heat waves and extreme weather events, increased vulnerability of the Amazon rainforest ecosystem to significant transformation or collapse, widespread thawing of the permafrost resulting in significant increases in methane and CO2 emissions, and total loss of summer Arctic sea ice. Wow, that's pretty, pretty catastrophic on all levels, really, at that point. Yeah. And you say that that's kind of like where we're currently headed with, with things as they are. Exactly, yes. So if we if if we make good on the promises that we've already made and uh, the trajectory we're already on, we don't do any more than that, then it then they're sort of estimating something like a three degree temperature rise eventually. So it's too much, to be honest. Like we, we need to get it down yeah. certainly below two degrees. Uh, we don't want that, any of that. That seven metre sea level rise seems incredible as well. You know, 
for us on, a, on an island like England, that's going to have a massive impact on all of our coastal communities. That's true. Yeah. The the thing to bear in mind about this uh, is that you know, so it says that there will be a there's a temperature rise at which you know once we hit that temperature threshold, Greenland is essentially doomed. Like you can't do anything yeah, about. There's yeah. it's kind of like a tipping point in regards yeah. to the Greenland ice sheet, and um, although it will eventually melt completely, it will take hundreds or thousands of years for that to happen. So oh, we're, okay. we're not going to be okay. hit suddenly with you know suddenly by seven. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Because it's going to take a while to melt, but but the even even so, like you know, the the rate of sea level rise that we're getting already of like centimeters is causing havoc anyway. So you know, yeah. like if that if the rate sort of accelerates, it's going to be you know like 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 for example, in the Netherlands, they have they have to spend huge amounts of money on making sure that because they're a low lying country, that 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 the existing amount of sea level rise isn't going to cause them problems, and as sea level rise increases the amount of money you've got to spend on this to ensure that you know that sea level rise doesn't become a huge problem just increases exponentially and yeah with seven meters of sea level rise yeah the map of europe the map of the whole world is going to be quite radically different anyway it only gets worse from here (laughs) as we go up the the temperature thresholds between three and four degrees which we were on track for but hopefully we've avoided now yes here's what we've avoided (laughs) Yeah, if you put it like that, it's uh, probably going to make you feel a lot better. Large losses of agricultural production across most regions of the world, with the possible exception of the higher latitudes. Declines in grain yield in the lower latitudes and increased food prices could place an additional 600 million people at risk of hunger. 60% of the world's population exposed to dengue, potentially more than half of all species at risk of extinction. Blimey. Complete collapse of the Arctic ecosystem and total loss of summer ice over the Arctic Ocean. Two thirds of the tundra and up to one quarter of coastal wetland ecosystems lost. Possibly increased instability of the methane hydrates at higher latitudes with potential large scale methane releases over the next few centuries. Substantial slowing or even possible shutdown of the thermohaline ocean circulation. Noticeable increases in storm intensity and extreme weather events. Amazon rainforest ecosystems may totally collapse and possibly become a major source of CO2 emissions. Significant chance of the terrestrial land uh, carbon pool transitioning from a carbon sink to a carbon source. Much higher risk of collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet. So would that be what we were talking about uh, last week, I think, potentially, or the week before, of saying that as the oceans cool, that will lead to them being able to capture less carbon and keep hold of less carbon. So it would almost like speed up the release of carbon into the atmosphere. Um, so you mean as the oceans warm, right, John? Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> they warm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so <laughs> I wish they would cool. Um, then they'd be able to absorb more carbon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so I think, yeah, so they're not exactly the same. Are you talking about when we were talking about the methane hydrates at higher latitudes? Was it that bit? Pardon? Possibly, possibly not. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think, I think what you're, yeah. So there, are, there are various they call positive feedbacks where, like you know, as you get warmer, there is a chance that sort of maybe certain natural sources of carbon dioxide will be emitted, and so this will further contribute to climate change. Uh, and what are they talking about here? They're talking about methane hydrates. Yeah. So these are um, sources of methane, which is a very potent greenhouse gas that are under the sea floor. 
But as the sea itself like increases in temperature, these methane hydrates might then be released. Um, and that would be bad news because that would speed up global warming. So it's a bit of an, a positive feedback. Positive feedbacks are bad in the context of climate change. I guess, yeah, so we want to do all we can to not have these positive feedbacks happen. Um, but yeah, you're right. So yeah, again, like you were saying, as the ocean warms, it becomes less able to capture some of the carbon we put into the atmosphere. So so I can see how you made the link there. Another point yeah. as well, well, this might be something more for, for the next episode when we're talking about what people believe to be the positives of climate change. But the melting of the Arctic sea ice you know, for countries like Russia is going to be a very big economic benefit for them. Mm. You know, opening up all of those those trading routes, uh, one of the things that Russia struggles with the most is being able to access warm water ports in order to, to, uh, to trade and, and export goods. And so the melting of, uh, of the Arctic opens up the whole of the, the Northern Passage for them to be able to transport goods along the north of uh, the the Russian coastline as well, so they would very much be seeing some of these changes as as being a benefit to them. Yeah, certainly they would. Although it's also worth mentioning that Russia itself is going to have huge issues with the permafrost melting. So, like, I don't know if you remember, but there's the way global warming works is you actually get more global temperature rise in the northern latitudes. So yeah, yeah, and um, because so a lot of a lot of the, the ground at high latitudes is actually sort of frozen underneath. Uh, and then what people do is they build buildings on top of these. Now, what happens as the as the climate warms and warms quite rapidly in the in the Arctic, sort of that northern those northern latitudes, is that the, the buildings themselves start to fall over because of the, the ground underneath them being now unstable. Uh, so so while there is that benefit for Russia and for other countries of global trade and being able to nip across the Arctic. Uh, there are also negatives as well. Okay, so yeah, so there are two more. So between four and five degrees and beyond five degrees. So hopefully this is a, climate, a level of climate change that no one's going to have to endure <laughs> mm -hmm. because it's by this stage, it's becoming pretty apocalyptic. So between four and five degrees, serious and widespread declining crop yields and some countries would suffer near complete collapse of their agricultural systems, particularly parts of South Asia, the Mediterranean and Africa with major implications for world food security. Major socioeconomic impacts associated with collapse or transformation of marine and terrestrial ecosystem changes and changes in health and water impacts affecting a majority of the world's population. High probability of collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet with a subsequent commitment combined with Greenland to long-term sea level rise of at least 10 to 15 metres over the next 300 to 500 years and also committing many e existing coastal marine ecosystems to complete destruction. Complete collapse of the Amazon ecosystems, almost certain transition of the land carbon pool from sink to source, up to two-thirds of all species committed to extinction, much larger risk for significant methane hydrate release and shutdown of the thermohaline ocean circulation. Yeah, so like four degrees, you know, we were saying before, four degrees cooler than today, we had a big block of ice, you know, on on the on the on the north northern part of the northern hemisphere. You know, this is this is what will happen if we have like four or five degrees, you know, on top of the pre-industrial. It's uh, it's no laughing matter. Okay, so finally, uh, beyond five degrees, very few estimates of potential impacts of temperature increases above five degrees C are contained in the literature 
due to high uncertainty surrounding the impacts of such high temperature changes. However, based on the extent and magnitude of the impacts that are likely to occur below 5 degrees, it is expected that the impacts would become much more severe and widespread at temperature changes beyond 5 degrees C Celsius. Changes of this magnitude may commit the Earth to runaway climate change, where emissions from non-human related sources, natural processes, become self-sustaining and the driving force for ever more global warming. Sorry, even more global warming. Very few estimates of potential impacts of temperature increases above 5 degrees Celsius are contained in the literature due to high uncertainty surrounding the impacts of such high temperature changes. Few climate events of this magnitude have occurred in the Earth's past history, particularly at the rate of temperature change that could eventuate over the next two centuries if we are unable to stabilise atmospheric greenhouse gas concentrations at moderate levels. Okay, so that, that is all very scary, but it's important to remember that we have already started to turn this ship around with all the policies that are currently in place and we should be able to stabilise at three degrees of warming at a maximum. This is, of course, still way too high, but we will hopefully, with concerted effort, manage to bring this eventual temperature rise down further still. I'll, I'll, there's a Kurzgesagt video that talks in a very positive way about the potential for this, so I'll put that in the show notes. But it, it definitely is good news that we are no longer on course for four degrees of warming. This is a huge achievement in itself. Uh, but it's also no time for complacency or to take our foot off the the gas, so to speak, to keep pressure on <laughs> everyone around the world. <laughs> Freudian slip. Good analogy. Yeah, yeah. not my best, not my best. So have we got a, a final good news story to, to round off this week's episode, John? Uh, yeah, okay, so let's try and finish up with some positivity after all of that. This week's story is about another development in geothermal energy. So I think we talked about that in one of our previous news stories, mm -hmm. talking about how in England and other countries around Europe, they're looking to utilise the old mine systems in order to get heat out from the ground. Mm -hmm. So this is about a uh, the a company called Ever, pronounced E-A-V-O-R. And their co-founder, John Redfern, uh, gave an interview where he talked about how they've reinvented an idea of drawing heat up from the ground from rocks miles down. Um, so they're superheated rocks um, heated by the Earth's core where temperatures are comparable to those on the surface of the sun and could potentially mean that they could be used as a, a sustaining heat source even without the sun being around as well it's mm. a, a very simple system basically traditional geothermal uh, geothermal technology has to target an aquifer and then use it as a form of fracking to force water into and then out of very hot permeable rock underground that creates steam which drives a turbine which generate generates electricity but this is a very inefficient system. It loses about 50% of the energy in the pumping process. Mm -hmm. Instead, whatever's plan is to drill two eight-inch wide wells down several miles and then drill laterally some more miles that connect them together. And this will then create a huge closed loop. Uh, the way they describe it, it's a bit like a massive radiator underground. And then through conduction, they let water throw, flow through the system 
And then the large surface area of the bores are superheated by the surrounding rock and it creates uh, this kind of endless closed loop of heat generation, uh, which can be used to generate electricity. So there's several of their projects in the works around the world. Uh, the most advanced one is a $325 million uh, uh, ever loop in Bavaria in Germany, 150 miles of wells in total, 2.5 miles deep. And they're coping with temperatures of around 302 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. And this is expected to uh, come online in October 2024 when they've completed their first loop. Uh, and then once it's been commercially proven, uh, then this will be something that then will be able to be rolled out uh, further elsewhere. And what, what's uh, quite a, a nice little bit of irony here is a little bit of a, a dig at the oil and gas industry. Mm -hmm. uh, apparently, Redfern had his eureka moment and got his idea for this system when he was talking to an executive from Shell oh. uh, who told him that the oil industry was never going to be interested in pursuing geothermal energy. And he took that to be like, oh, brilliant. So there's a gap in the market. I could have a go at that. <laughs> and there's potentially been coming up with some technology that might ultimately replace them as, a, as an energy source. <laughs> that's that's uh, He's certainly a more positive individual than I am. I, <laughs> to hear that sort of thing and think, all ah, right, that gives me an idea. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I just love the way that like all over the world, like, people entrepreneurs are coming up with like clever ideas that you know and and they're not sort of necessarily going to be the panacea that like oil or coal was but but they they each do their bit and then all together you know we we do see like you know a move away from fossil fuels so that keeps me hopeful in the light of you know the the impacts and you know the 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 craziness at the global cop meetings and whatnot yeah yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, I know we do demonise the oil and gas industry a lot on this show, rightly so a lot of the time. But I mean, they have been the, the tool that has provided us with, with so much good in the world, you know, our ability to connect with people across the world, trading, improving the kind of living conditions of so many people across the world, and, and things like that. So, you know, they really have brought about the modern world and, and allowed us to, to live as we do currently. But now that we know what we know, it's just so much more important than ever that we that we do the right thing by addressing the problems that we now know are being caused by that. Exactly. You know, and also for for us in Britain, you know, you know, we did start it all. To be fair, we, yeah. we started the industrial revolution. We've been a major bene, uh, benefiter of it all. So yeah. I think it's it's a big part of our responsibility to do something about it. Definitely. Okay, so that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. You can find a link to all of the materials we've rep referenced in this episode in our show notes. Uh, next episode, we're going to be looking at level four, the idea that climate change will have a positive effect. If you want to know more about the Climate Skepticism podcast, check out our website at ccspod.podbean.com. If you've enjoyed the episode and would like to support the show further, you can leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcast, as it is now known. We're really, really keen for people to be uh, give, leaving us reviews now, uh, really trying to get some momentum going on the podcast. So any listeners, if you could do that, we'd really appreciate that so much. If you want to send us any feedback or suggestions or even questions for the show, we're considering uh, opening up a, a viewer questions section uh, on the episodes for any questions you want answered, then do please send those to us. And yeah, so that's goodbye from me, John Rainier. And goodbye from me, Mark Prosser. <laughs>
And we leave you with this quote today from Mary Robinson, the former president of Ireland and former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. And shortly before the COP28 meeting, uh, she called for uh, saying that it's not about a single individual or nation, but the collective will and concerted efforts of all countries in these negotiations. The science compels us phase out fossil fuels rapidly, accelerate renewable energy adoption and radically scale up finance. And although unfortunately phasing out fossil fuels was not something that came from the COP28, uh, we're hearing from somebody here who's not an executive representing the fossil fuel industry, that these are the things we need to be working towards. We'll see you next time. Thank you.